This morning I'm excited to continue to look at the parables of Jesus, uh, as we will and have started already and will over the next few months. Uh, Jesus told amazing, interesting, memorable, shocking, confusing, complex parables. And as we've seen already, uh, it's important that we listen, that we listen carefully to these parables because their meaning isn't always obvious. And sometimes parables seem to us a little too familiar, a little too much like these little folksy stories that, um, that Jesus told, and yet they're deeply subversive to the way that we think and the way that we view the world and the way that we think the world works. And so uh, one of those examples of that is the one that we find this morning in Matthew 20. Uh, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles there. One other thing I would say by way of introduction about parables is that a parable is much more than an illustration. A parable isn't just making the point that Jesus is teaching like a sermon illustration. It's much bigger than that. A parable in the uh, image of one uh, commentator is more like a house in which we take up residence. We move into it. We explore it. And we begin to see different facets of it. And we begin to then look out the windows of the house and see the world in a very different way. It's not an, just um, a simple lesson. It's a new way of seeing. And I hope to challenge us, and as I've been challenged by this parable this morning. Partly, partly what, what is also interesting is that Jesus taught deep theological truths in parables. Vital, key theological concepts, the love of God, the kingdom of God, the way of salvation, the incarnation, all of these things Jesus taught not with ten logical points, not with a list of propositions, but with parables. And we Westerners, we look for logical points, and we look for rational points, and we look for, you know, that the truth to be taught to us in terms of propositions, But Jesus is speaking to an Eastern audience, and he's describing these complex, deep theological truths using stories, using images, using parables. And so it's a challenge for us to understand them. I hope as as I'm teaching these parables, as we're seeing them in the sermons, to also lead us in a way of interpreting them, of seeing what's important. So as we go, I hope to kind of wrestle with the text with you as we look at the parables this morning. So there's a sermon outline in the bulletin. Our, pay, our, uh, our text is uh, Matthew 20. It's on page 697 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Here's the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. And the workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. 
So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give this man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Please pray with me. Father, we need your help to understand what's true about this world that you've made and about your kingdom. So speak to us now. and Give us wisdom and insight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To begin with, as we think about how to interpret a parable, we need to look at the context. Sometimes the the context of our parable uh, clues clues us in to what Jesus is talking about. And we notice that in our parable this morning because it begins, chapter 20, begins with a connecting word. And it makes something of an artificial divide in Jesus' words. Our, Our chapter break is kind of in the wrong place here. A number of clues then connect this parable with the event that preceded it which is the interaction of Jesus with the rich young ruler and then his interaction with the disciples afterwards. So we remember the story. The rich man wanted to know about eternal life. The rich man walked away sad because Jesus said, uh, because of his wealth, because Jesus said, you know, give your money up and follow me. And the man was unwilling. So So that begins to give us a scope, right? This parable is about wealth. Maybe it's about the cost of discipleship. Maybe it's about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. Our context, right, begins to narrow down what our parable is about. Peter's question in chapter 19, verse 27, really sets us up for the parable and focuses Jesus' words. If it's really difficult for the rich to be saved, which is a shocking statement for the disciples, Then what about those disciples? What about us who've left everything behind, Peter says? Well, we have a reward. What's our reward going to be? And Jesus answers Peter's question partly. And he gives him beautiful promises about how you will have a reward. And Jesus also tells this parable. And so, and then we see that the connecting, uh, the end of that chapter, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, then brackets the parable as it ends the parable. So these are the, the reasons that we connect this parable, of course, with the events that surround it. The context sets us up for the story. We already read it. I'll just summarize it. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven has something to do with this. The kingdom of heaven can be described by. A facet of the kingdom of heaven is shown in this parable. At first, nothing is unusual about the parable. The owner of the vineyard goes, he, he hires laborers. Uh, that was a very normal thing to do. It's likely pruning time or harvest time, a busy time at the vineyard. He needs additional help. But he hires a number of different groups throughout the day, which is a bit strange. And the parable, of course, turns on this payment of the workers, the order in which they're paid, the wage that the different groups receive. They all receive the same wage. And then conflict erupts, right? This is unfair. This is an outrage. The justice, the righteousness of the owner is directly challenged by this group of workers. 
For his part, of course, the owner responds with a defense of his actions and his character. He claims no injustice, but instead a radical kind of generosity that brings offense. Then the parable stops. There's no resolution. There's no summary statement except for this cryptic line, the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, what happened? Were the workers who were upset satisfied by the owner's explanation? Did they continue to argue? What happened next? We just we don't know. But what Jesus is doing is he's drawing the audience into the story. You know, you're committed to the story at this point, and you have taken sides at this point in the parable. Who's right? And why do you think so? It's a way that Jesus taught over and over again to draw people into his story, was to leave it open-ended and to let them wrestle with and think about what was really going on. We looked at the summarizing of the story. It's also important for us to look at the characters. Who's in the parable? Who do they represent? Why are they there? Um, What are they doing that's normal? And what are they doing that's unusual? And what are they doing that's outrageous? So often in Jesus' parables, he teaches us something by outrageous characters, by something that would never happen in the real world, by exaggeration, by humor. So we've got... A, different, a number of groups of people here. We have the workers. They're day laborers, we might think of them. They're gathered at a specific place in the marketplace or wherever employers would come to get extra workers for special jobs. They're actively seeking a job so that they can provide for their families for that day. So we should picture that they're in a precarious position. If they don't find work for that day, There will likely be next to nothing for their families to eat that night. This was the kind of economic culture of the day for these kinds of workers. A hand-to-mouth kind of existence. They would love to have regular work. They're eager to get hired, especially by a trustworthy landowner, even just for a day. We see their eagerness because the text tells us that they're standing. They're not sitting around. They're not relaxing or hanging out, but they're actively waiting to be hired. They're ready to approach anyone. And in the Middle East today, these these kinds of same markets exist, where uh, someone will drive up in a van and say, I need five workers, and there'll be a crowd of men who need work, who will want to get into the van and go and work even just for a day. They're motivated to work. And even the last group who is hired in the 11th hour They've been waiting from 6 a.m. until 5 p.m. They're still standing. They're waiting to be hired. They haven't given up hope. I met a man recently who was from Sarajevo in Bosnia. As we talked, we learned that, we had, that he had actually visited the town in Hungary where we lived many times. And we easily could have met there. We overlapped when uh, he was living there and when we were in Hungary. It was really you know, a small world kind of fascinating thing. This guy who lives in D.C. that we randomly met, we could have overlapped with uh, across the world. Uh, so we were talking about things about his home country, about things that, uh, and this kind of thing, and he lamented that there are still no jobs in Bosnia. Something like 60% unemployment. He got out when he could. He has opportunities here because he wanted, uh, he was motivated to do so and he wanted a better life, but there is a helplessness that we feel when we can't find work. We can't provide for ourselves and others because God made us to work. Work was a part of the creation before the fall into sin. 
And though our work and our relationship with it is tainted by sin, it remains with us, within us, to want to use our talents to create and to make an impact and to provide for ourselves and for others. And so, of course, some of us can relate to the painful feeling, what it must have felt like to be these laborers. We know, some of us, what it has been to be stuck in a bad job that doesn't make ends meet, the struggle to find something better. Some of us maybe have never really enjoyed our work or found it satisfying. Some of us known, have known the rejection of sending out resumes and, and getting no responses. We can relate to these men because they don't want to come home empty-handed. We can sense their frustration, their desperation, even their shame. And as we read this parable, we should feel it with them. We should understand their plight as Jesus describes their lives to us. Those are our workers. We also meet the owner of the vineyard. He's the landowner, the master of the house, the central character of the story. He seems to be well-respected in the community. He can hire many workers. No questions are raised about him being a fair uh, uh, employer or a harsh one or a stingy one. In fact, in terms of the negotiation with these groups of workers, did you notice the differences? The, only the first group is actually promised a wage. He says, I'll pay you a denarius for your day's work. The next group's All he says is, I will give you whatever is right. I'll give you whatever is just. You can trust me, in other words, that I'll pay you what's fair. They don't need any further assurances. They go to work. The final group receives no promises at all. He just says, come to my vineyard. He doesn't even say, I'm going to pay you. But they trusted him. And so they came anyway. So we get the sense that this is a fair owner, that he's going to do what's right. But he's also a strange one. One commentator renamed this the parable of the eccentric employer. What's unusual about this owner? Well, he returns to the market five different times during a single day. Is he a terrible project manager? Can't he calculate a little bit more accurately how much work he needs and how many workers he needs to do the work? And even further, when the foreman is mentioned... In verse 8, the original audience would have thought, wait a second, why is the owner going back and forth, back and forth to the marketplace all day long? That's the foreman's job. That's tedious work. No self-respecting owner would do that kind of thing. What's motivating the owner to act in these strange ways, to go back and hire workers again and again? And is this owner a righteous man, a just man? We meet the foreman. He's a minor character whose job it is to pay the workers. We meet, then at the end of the parable, we get the all-day workers. They become something of a separate group in verse 11 as they begin to dispute with the owner about their wages, verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When one... um, When they received it, they began to grumble against the landover. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So these guys are not convinced that the owner is just. He's unjust. There is nothing equal about the work that we have done. Twelve hours of work is not the same as one hour of work. You have made them equal to us. How unfair is that? 
the owner's response, of course, is really interesting. He uses an unusual Greek word for friend. He doesn't use a normal one. He uses a rare one. It's a polite but less intimate kind of word, like, like what you call someone whose name you don't know. In a number of Arabic translations, early translations, the owner addressed this worker with a greeting that meant something like, you who are doing the shouting. And it makes us laugh, right? Because the Arabic translator may not have known the nuance of the Greek word, but he knew the scene. He knew the story. This is a first century dispute in Palestine with a bunch of angry guys, right? They're protesting. They're stomping. This is injustice. This is an outrage. They're waving their arms. This is Billy Martin disputing with the home plate ump, right? This is John McEnroe and the chair judge, you know. This is, this is us. Uh, this is a few Redskins fans talking to some guys from North Jersey about the Giants, right? We're not at the point of fisticuffs. But this is a scene. This is an unpleasant scene. This is not polite disputing going on here. What's Jesus trying to teach us through these characters? What's the point of this story? The detail that strikes me in the face about this parable is that the owner instructs the foreman to pay the workers in reverse order. Think about it. If he had paid them in the order in which they were hired, the first guys hired would come, they would get their full wage, they would go away happy. The next guys hired, they would come, they would get the full wage, they would be happier because they didn't work the whole day, but they still got a full wage. Right? Each group coming would be happier and happier. This is the best owner I've ever worked for. No one's upset about anything. It's a good day. I worked hard. I provided for my family. I didn't even work the whole day, and I got the full wage. I can go home, and I can face my family. But Jesus has the owner turn it around to cause offense. He purposefully scandalizes every group of workers so that each is getting madder and madder, right? Instead of making everyone happier and happier, he's making everyone madder and madder. Disappointment and anger are mounting until it bursts out. You're being unfair. What's his response? Verse 13. But he answered one of them, Friend, or you who are doing the shouting, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Something else is going on, isn't it? There's a different kind of justice operating here. Equal pay for equal work is not the only kind of justice in this kingdom. There's more than just you reap what you sow. There's more than just equal application of the law. In this otherworldly, grace-filled, welcoming to sinners kingdom of heaven, everything is a gift. And nothing is equal, or actually everything is equal, depending on how you look at it. But when it comes to salvation, everyone receives a denarius. When the owner is instructing the the foreman to pay them in verse 8, he uses a singular word. Don't pay them their wages, pay them the wage. There's only one wage. It's a day's wage. It's what they need for the day. It's a denarius. This great extension of justice goes with mercy and compassion. Do you care about those who didn't work the whole day and have to go home and face their wives and their children? Do you care that they could be happy 
that their dignity could be preserved and honored even if they weren't able to work the whole day? Right? The owner wronged no one. The first group of workers is getting exactly what they were promised. They agreed to work for a denarius. They got a denarius. So why the shouting? What's their charge? You've made them equal to us. And they didn't do as much. The less deserving are getting the same thing I'm getting. Workers who are motivated by reward get furious about grace. What are they really doing? They're trying to control the owner. They're trying to tell the owner how he should use his money. They're trying to make him subject to their own ideas of justice, which looks like self-promotion and selfishness. And so that's why we get the owner's pushback statements here in verse 15. The problem isn't with my sense of justice, says the owner. The problem is with your heart that begrudges my generosity. The problem is your envy. The problem is you don't care about your neighbor. You only care about yourself. So, to summarize, I've sort of been giving away what the parable means all along. Not that it was really a surprise, right? The owner is Jesus. Even his incarnation is in view. He didn't send another to hire guys. He went himself. He doesn't stand aloof. He enters into the world at great cost to himself, doing what no owner would do to display his mercy and compassion on his workers. The amount of work that they're doing is not important. What's happening in the vineyard is not, is not in view. What's happening is he's going back to the marketplace again and again because he has mercy and compassion on people who desperately need a job. Jesus doesn't give them charity. Jesus lifts them up and calls them to service in his upside-down kingdom. Jesus gives the wage to all who come to him and hear his voice and call on him in faith. So in this parable, we have this scene where all the workers are believers, presumably. All of them have received a gift of salvation, but for some, there's still this ugly temptation to compare with one another, to be jealous of one another, to be self-righteous, to think we deserve better. In this kingdom, the wage is for the scoundrel deathbed convert. The wage is for the career missionary in Bangladesh. The wage is for the woman whose family held a funeral for her when she became a Christian. The wage is for the man who persecuted and executed Christians until Jesus blinded him and got a hold of his life. The wage is for good King David. The wage is for bad King Manasseh. Read his story. The worst of the kings leading people in idolatry who repented at the end of his life. There's only one wage in the kingdom, and it's not connected to how much work you did. The focus is not on the wage. The focus is on the radical generosity of the owner. Join me in the house of the parable. How does it change your view of the world? How do we feel about what Jesus has done? Do we celebrate when the lost are found, when the last become first? Or do we think somewhere in the depth of our hearts that we lose when others win? Do we think that God's love is limited, either towards us or towards others? Do we think that we've somehow deserved it? Put yourself in the parable. Do you remember standing at the marketplace, desperate for a job, ashamed of your sin, unable to do anything about it? Do you remember being lost? Broken? 
Did you see the owner enter the world and come near to you and lift you up out of your sadness? When were you hired? How much of the heat of the day was your burden to bear? Does it bother you that Johnny-come-lately scoundrels are also accepted by God? Not even a little bit? People who never served in the church and never tithed and never apologized to all of the people they hurt and never took or had the chance to make it up, never lifted a finger in the kingdom of God, they sneak in and they get the same reward as you? Does the grace of God offend us? And of course, this isn't just the issue of salvation. It can be extended for us to see that God's providence and his blessing is not equal among his people. And this parable confronts us in our sins of comparison and self-righteousness and jealousy and selfishness and our attempts to control God and think that he should be a bit more discerning about who he gives grace and blessing to. The point that Jesus is making to Peter and to us is that he is the most generous, compassionate owner. The focus is on this eccentric owner who gives himself to have mercy on men and women and boys and girls who are helpless and broken and in need. Challenges us, doesn't it? I recently heard about a new book written last year called Mission at Nuremberg. I haven't had time to read it, so uh, if one of you all want to read it and give me a summary, a book report, that'd be great. Um, It's a fascinating story. I want to read it. I just haven't had the opportunity to. It tells the story of a Lutheran pastor who's from St. Louis. He He enlisted as a chaplain during World War II. In 1944, he was sent to Europe. And he served there as a chaplain until the end of the war. At the end of the war, he was given a different assignment. He was given the task to be spiritual counsel for 21 German prisoners who were held for trial at Nuremberg. From Hermann Goering all the way down. The architects of the final solution. The men in charge of genocide and unspeakable atrocities are given a chaplain. And this chaplain, along with uh, a Catholic priest, are given the opportunity to declare to those men the grace of God. Is that fair? Ask the people of Poland. Ask the Jews of Hungary. Ask anyone else who was involved, is that fair? That these men have a chaplain, that they can go to worship services, that they have the opportunity to repent. Could God make them equal to us? Equal? Who deserves the grace of God? What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of God is this? What is Jesus saying to us this morning? Consider these things. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you have called us who were lost and broken and standing around into something amazing, into your kingdom, into a relationship with you. 
And you've done it not because we worked. You've done it because you love. We pray that you would make us people who are gracious, who model and, and experience that and give it towards others. Lord, forgive us our sins of comparison and self-righteousness and all of the other things and help us to see you as, as the most generous and kind one. We thank you for your word. Continue to speak to us through it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.